trying to find a better alternative to bonds? Who isn't? Well, perfect replacement doesn't exist. There are at least some other options that could potentially get you sort of close. And I'm about to explain them in this, the 17th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Welcome back. Welcome to, uh, let's call this part two of my small little series on bonds. In last week's episode, episode 16, I talked about uh, the basics of what a bond is and what what bond funds are. I talked about their sort of use case in uh, a retiree portfolio talked about how they work, what makes their prices go up and go down, and other things to consider with uh, owning, investing in bonds. Today, as promised last week, I want to talk about some potential alternatives to bonds. Now, I'll I'll be frank up front. My name's Andy, not Frank, but uh, go with me here. I'll be frank. There aren't any exact perfect replacement for bonds. There's, There's a few different things I'll discuss that I think could potentially um, play some of the role of what bonds do in a portfolio, but nothing is bulletproof, unfortunately. There, there is no magical unicorn of a product that's going to do everything you want and need it to do as a, as a bond replacement. So let's just recap quickly what, what bonds are for in a retiree portfolio. Many people think uh, that bonds are, are there to throw off some meaningful amount of guaranteed interest. And all things considered, the bond or bond investment should be low risk, you know, minimal, if any, risk of principal loss. They're just there to, to throw you off some interest. Well, that's unfortunately not the case. And it never was the case. Now, historically, as I mentioned last week, uh, interest rates were higher in absolute terms decades ago in the 70s, 80s. Uh, the 10-year United States Treasury bond was paying 15%, give or, I think it may have been 16 even at its peak. Now it's paying around 2%. Uh, it broke below one percent at the sort of bottom of the uh, the fallout, the market fallout of the of the pandemic recently. But point is, the in absolute terms, the interest generated by bonds now isn't anything to write home about. But like I mentioned last time, uh, when when you factor in the impacts of inflation and taxes you have to pay on the interest, the net amount of usable interest you get today isn't really that far off from what it was decades ago when when interest rates on the face value were uh, you know over, over double digits. So just bring this back around, but bonds aren't really there to give you a lot of income unfortunately. Maybe in the past you can sort of think they were, but now no, clearly when you're getting, you know, 1 to 2, maybe 2 plus percent on on bonds now. So so what are they there for? Well, it's my view and the view of many others is, is that it's really just a I use the terms all the time. It's starting to sound like a broken record. A, a ballast of stability against the the volatility and much higher riskiness of the stock portion of your portfolio. Stocks are there for, for long-term growth. Um, stocks can and will do nasty things over the short term. They, they can drop tens or, you know, tens of percent per year, uh, as they did in the great financial uh, crisis of 2008-2009. Uh, uh, most recently, pandemic March, you know, early 2020, S&P 500 dropped 30 percent before it made a, a phenomenally strong rebound for the last few years since. Um, but stocks do wild things, so bonds are there to sort of t- tamp down the collective volatility of your portfolio. 
And from a retiree's specific perspective, there's something called sequence of returns risk. Basically, you know, retirees are, are distributing, taking money out of their portfolios, unlike pre-retirement when you're just piling money in. You know, down markets are good when you're in the accumulation stage of life, when you're adding money. Down markets mean you get to buy more for a given amount of dollars you put in. Uh, but when, when you're retired, you're taking money out, down markets are bad. You know, if stock market's down, you don't want to be selling stocks inside your portfolio to distribute out cash you need to live. Because once you uh, sell those stocks when they're down, they're never going to rebound. Like stocks will come back eventually, whether it's one year, two year, five year, whatever. You want to ideally leave your depressed stocks there so they can eventually rebound and come back. So bonds are there and other lower risk uh, assets are there such that if and when stock market is down and you need to take a distribution from your portfolio, you don't want to be selling off stocks when the prices are beaten up. You would sell off something more safe and stable, like bonds. You know, this is where bonds come in. Or like cash. If you're sitting on a, a pile of cash, you would be you know, living off some cash for a while. So bonds aren't perfect. Bond prices, bond funds can go up and go down in value. Yes, they do throw off some interest uh, over, or, you know, over the course of the year. But their prices can fluctuate. Like one of the most widely used bond fund investments out there is the uh, total bond market fund. And, and different providers have a fund that more or less does the same thing. Well, that fund's down like 5% year to date. You know, here we are, April 2022. It's, it's down. I mean, it's fluctuates each day, but it's, it's down about 5-ish percent as of the time I'm recording this. So people who thought bonds were this sort of safety, can't lose money, it's just there to generate some income investment are like, whoa, 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 wait a second. What happened? Why are my bonds down 5%? So yes, they're not perfect. But if you use uh, you know, proper type of bonds, meaning you don't invest in ultra risky things from really questionable borrowers, or you don't invest in uh, really long-term maturity bonds whose prices swing that much more when interest rates change, you should be okay, you know, relatively speaking. Your bond funds aren't going to lose 20%, 30% like your stock funds can. Yes, they may lose a handful of percent per year. Um, you know, maybe they go up. Like in 2020, for example, this total market bond fund I'm referencing was up like 9%, I think, which is, which is uncharacteristically high. And that's because interest rates tanked during the pandemic. The, the world was falling apart, we thought. Um, interest rates came came crashing down as a result of uh, fear of economy stalling out. And um, so interest rates drop to help sort of spur the economy. And when rates go down, bond prices go up and vice versa. So this bond fund did exceptionally well in 2020, but that meant interest rates were rock bottom lows. They kind of had nowhere to go but up. Well, that's not entirely true. They could have went down more. Um, Japan and parts of Western Europe had have had negative interest rates for, for years. So not to say uh, interest rates in the US can't go down further. I'm kind of rambling now, but point is, um, you know, the inevitable has happened. Interest rates did turn the corner and start going back up and they went up fairly sharp uh, and sharply over the, over the last handful of months, which means, yes, this, this bond fund has dropped a few percent. But uh, sort of the, some of the saving grace is as interest rates do rise, as new bonds come in, into this portfolio of the bond fund, they'll be paying higher interest rates. So while you may have lost some sort of uh, principal value on your bond or bond fund investment now, You'll slowly start to make it up with uh, higher ongoing interest going forward, getting generated by it. So that was my, my quick sort of recap about the purpose of bonds in your portfolio. So keep that in mind as we go through the possible alternatives. So you can really frame, is this really a good alternative or not? What are the pros? What are the cons? How does it stack up relative to a well-diversified, um, you know, not too risky portfolio of bonds or, or, or bond fund? 
So let's get into it. Alternatives, uh, cash, pure cash. Uh, and I guess you can think about this two ways, like cash, physical cash, literally sitting in a coffee can in your, in your house or under your mattress or something. Um, upside is you're never going to lose principal value. I mean, barring your house burning down and the cash, you know, physically getting destroyed, which is why you don't keep a lot of cash, you know, physically, you want to put it in the, in the banking system. Um, you're never going to lose principal value. You know, that, that $10 sitting in your bed will always be $10 on the surface, but there's inflation. If you're not earning any interest on your cash, you, you are in effect losing money or, or at least losing buying power every year that there's inflation greater than zero. And outside of a few years, you know, over recent history, uh, inflation has always been something greater than zero. Um, there may have been deflation where uh, back in the Depression days and maybe even World War II, I don't know. Um, but, you know, in, in modern history, last few decades, inflation's only been zero uh, for a few years or something greater than zero. So by just holding cash sitting in a coffee can, you are losing uh, buying power. You know, you're guaranteed to lose buying power. So you're not losing principal value. You're not losing face value, but you are losing uh, buying power nonetheless. Or put cash in banks. Um, you know, banks. When it's in a bank, you, you you sort of avoid the physical destruction risk of, of of the cash burning down in your house, and you get some interest. But depending what type of vehicle within the bank your cash is in, you're not getting much interest. If you just have your cash sitting in a regular checking account, you're maybe getting 0.01 percent interest. You know, maybe 0.02, 0.03, whatever, but but still far short of inflation, even when inflation was was lower a few years ago, you know, before the current spike, when inflation was averaging about two and a half percent per year, interest in the bank account was uh, still far from keeping up with that. So then there's CDs, certificates of deposit. You uh, kind of commit your money for a year, two years, three years, whatever, and get a little more interest in return. But even, even still, the interest on those isn't great. Currently a one-year CD um, I've seen some with teaser rates now of like 1% or a little higher, but still struggling to get to 1% per year interest on a one-year CD. You got to go out like three years, four years, five years to get interest noticeably over percent. But even then it's not five, six, seven percent. It's a couple, um, you know, percent, maybe slightly higher. So that's not great either. I mean, yes, it's higher than 0.01%, but you're also committing it for one, two, three years. And who knows what interest rates will be in a few years. So, you know, you're still not necessarily keeping up with inflation. And if when interest rates rise, you got your money in the CD. It's not really, you know, it's only getting 2%, let's say, when if the market level of interest in two years ends up being 4%, well, your 2% CD isn't such a great deal anymore. So cash isn't isn't an ideal alternative. Now, everyone should have some cash. Um, if nothing else, for a pure emergency fund, like your water heater breaks or, uh, I don't know, need a new car or something, but um, and and in retirement, it's it's typically good to have a you know at least a year, maybe two years of cash on hand to cover your ongoing expenses that aren't already met by pension or social security um, or you know other guaranteed income sources like annuities. So cash definitely is not a bond alternative. Yes, it's safe in that there will be you know ba basically zero risk of principal loss, but the interest is is jokingly painfully small. So you are losing buying power. So you don't want to hoard too much cash. Next, I-bonds. Um, they've been all the rage the last couple of years. The I in I-bonds stands, stands for inflation. These are bonds issued directly by the U.S. Treasury. They're, function, they're, they're technically bonds, but they're practically more like savings accounts. Um, you, you get them by opening an account at treasurydirect.gov. You, they they pay interest guaranteed. The reason why I said it's like a savings account is there's zero risk of principal loss. Whatever money you put in, you will get back plus interest. Uh, 
the interest that they pay is directly uh, uh, equal to the realized inflation, uh, CPI-based inflation. And that rate is reset every six months based on the, the current CPI reading at the time. So now the interest rate in effect until I think May 1st, uh, 2022 is when they change it, is 7.12%, I believe it is. It's over seven. I think it's 7.12. So guaranteed 7.12% on an annual basis. Um, that's high. That's really high for guaranteed interest. That also means inflation is really high because this was the actual inflation reading at the time they put this interest rate in place in uh, November 2021. So really high guaranteed interest, which, which is good. The downsides are you can only put in $10,000 per person per year. So if you're looking for a place to, you know, uh, you got a couple hundred thousand bucks of, of bonds, you're looking to swap out for something else. You can't just go buy $200,000 of I-bonds. You can only buy 10 grand per year per person. There's a few other little tricks. Like if you have a trust, uh, th that trust could potentially buy its own 10,000. You can also get up to $5,000 more per tax return. If you have a refund on your tax return, you can use up to 5,000 bucks of that refund to buy uh, additional I-bonds. So a big downside is you're really limited how much you can put in. Another major downside is whatever money you do put in, you absolutely cannot take out at all for the first 12 months afterwards. It, it is firmly locked up for the first 12 months. Even then, if you take it out between uh, you know, 12 months and five years, then there's a relatively small penalty. You have to give up the most recent three months of interest you received, which that isn't too onerous. Um, you know, I think that's definitely a, a penalty worth taking if you need the money. But the first year, you, you, you don't even have an option. You can't take the money out in the first year. So um, I-bonds, while interest is high and there's no risk of principal loss, they're just not functionally replacements for bonds because you can't put a lot in. You can't take money out in the first year. So that's that. Uh, next is MIGAs or multi-year guaranteed annuities, MYGA. Now, because I said annuity, don't uh, you know? Don't don't cringe. A lot of people have these visceral negative reactions to annuities. That's unfounded, at least in the case of of, of MIGAs. And and a whole separate topic I'll talk about later. But there's various different annuities. It's unfair to say all annuities are this or all annuities are that. They're, they're dramatically different forms of annuities. Here's one great example. So multi-year guaranteed annuities are functionally like certificates of deposit, but they're not bank products. They are technically annuities. They're issued by insurance companies. The way they work is there's different contract lengths, like two years, three years, five years. So let's assume you pick a three-year MIGA and you put in $100,000. And there's no limit to how much you can put in. At least I don't think there is. I mean, maybe it's some super high limit, but you know, you can put in hundreds of thousands of dollars if you want. Um, so let's assume a three-year MIGA it's a, it's a contract between you and insurance company. You say, okay, I'm going to put in $100,000 today. I, uh, I commit to leave that money in there for three years. At the end of three years, I will get back all $100,000 and I will get back interest. And the interest rate is guaranteed over the life of that three years. And currently, as of the time of this recording, a three-year MIGA is paying about 2.5% per year interest. So do the math. On $100,000, you can get $2,500 a year in interest over three years. So at the end of this three-year MIGA, you will get back your $100,000 initial purchase and $7,500 of, of interest. And the interest is all deferred. You don't pay tax on it until you eventually take it out. Or if you want to roll it over to another MIGA, you can, and you, you, you keep deferring the taxability of, uh, of realizing that interest. So the, the good side, you know, the upside is the interest paid on MIGAs is higher than CDs, you know, noticeably higher than bank CDs. 
The downside is the, the surrender. You know, it's a, in this example, three-year contract. Now, typically you can take out up to 10% per year without penalty in, in these MIGAs. If you take out anything more than that, there will be a surrender penalty. And that surrender penalty almost certainly will eat into your principal value. You know, meaning you put in a hundred thousand bucks, you'll get back less than a hundred thousand if you uh, withdraw more than this ten percent annual free withdrawal every year. So not super flexible, MIGAs. You know, if you know you can commit money for X amount of years, um, then sure it can make sense. But otherwise, if you're going to need access to it, this is probably not something you, you should consider. And even the rates, while the rates are higher than CDs, there's still nothing to write home about. So is it worth locking your money up for three years to get about two and a half percent? I mean, if you're super, super conservative, maybe, but otherwise, um, I, I don't know. You know, it's tough to say they're, they're, they're not saying they're good or bad. It's just the interest isn't that phenomenal to uh, to, to always justify the, the fairly strict multi-year uh, you know, commitment terms to these things. One other quick downside is if you is often won't apply to retirees, but if you're under 59 and a half and you uh, cash out your MIGA, you know, you, you close the contract or contracts over, you take your interest out, you will, in addition to paying tax, you will have to pay the 10% early withdrawal penalty um, on, on the interest you take out. The way to around that is simply keep rolling this into other MIGAs or other annuities uh, so that, you know, you're not actually taking distributions until you're after 59 and a half, then you avoid the penalty. But if you're 55, for example, and you have a three-year MIGA maturing and you cash it out, you will pay tax and you will pay 10% early withdrawal penalty on on the interest. Um, so that's MIGAs. Next, fixed indexed annuities. Uh these products are fairly complicated. I, I will be doing a whole topic on this. I, I did do um, a detailed YouTube video in my Facebook group about it with charts and graphs and really made this these things come to life. I definitely recommend checking it out. I'll, I'll share the link to that video in the show notes to this episode. But uh, I'll try to sum this up briefly. Um, a lot of moving parts, but in a fixed index annuity, long story short, uh, because it's annuity, there's a contract that you commit to for X amount of years. They're typically five-year, seven-year, 10-year, there's different lengths you can choose. Um, the interest you get can fluctuate year to year. It'll be floored at zero and capped at some typically low to mid-single-digit amounts. And the interest you get is is uh, benchmarked or keyed off of the return of some broad market index, typically like the S&P 500 or something. Um, but to, to sum up briefly, without getting too much of a rabbit hole, if you hold these fixed index annuities over the long-ish term, and let's assume seven to 10 years, um, you can reasonably expect to get low, maybe mid-single digit returns on average from these. So if you're looking for a two, 3% annual return, maybe as high as four on average uh, over seven or 10 years, these can, make, <clears throat> these can make sense. Fixed index annuities could make sense. Downside, not super flexible. Again, if you want or need access to your money along the way, uh, there will be limitations. You can typically take out up to 10% per year. Uh, you take out more than that, there will be surrender penalties. And these penalties can be as high as like 10% uh, in the first year. And they kind of taper off over the course of uh, the seven or 10 year, 12 year contract period. So long-term sort of buy and hold type approach. Yes, these can work in that they can produce uh, on average you know, two to 4% uh, average annual interest over the long term. They're not short-term products. They're not something you can kind of come and go with, with put money in, take money out. So that's their downside. But 
steady eddy, slow, low digit, you know, low single, um, single to mid digit annual returns. Th- this is something that could work for a portion of your, your bond portfolio. I wouldn't put all of your money into it. Um, because again, the, the accessibility of the money is, isn't quite, uh, nearly as liquid as it is with, with real bonds or, you know, cash or whatever, but still, uh, next. And now, now we're really, and I mean, these first few I mentioned, these, these are sort of the most feasible, uh, possible replacements for bonds. The next things I'm about to mention, um, I'm just putting them in there cause they're, 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 uh, worth mentioning they're hypothetically possible uh options but far from from perfect and and typically much riskier and much more um restrictions limitations to them in no particular order structured investments structured notes you you may have heard them these are uh, custom bespoke contracts between you and a large bank where there'll be some sort of conditions like if XYZ happens, we will give you, you know, 5% interest on this money. Or if ABC happens, you'll lose 1%. You can structure these things in whatever sort of way you want. They're, they're functionally just kind of like side bets you have with the banks who issue them. Um, they're not very liquid. You buy it. There's going to be, a, you know, a certain amount of years you have to keep the money in. Or if you take it out, there will be surrender penalties. And you do take the the credit risk of the bank who, who issues them. These are not investments. They're not securities you're invested in. It's truly just kind of a side bet contract agreement you have with the issuing bank that if ABC happens, then XYZ will be what you get is, is kind of how these things work at a super high level. But point is, if you get one of these things that is structured to uh, ideally on average, like a fixed index annuity, pay out some some fairly uh, reasonably known average rate of interest over seven years, 10 years, whatever, then yes, then these things can sort of be like a bond replacement in that they are kind of slow and low, steady eddy growth over the long term. Uh, Dividend paying stocks. This is a big one. People will just think, okay, well, I'll just buy a bunch of stocks that pay high dividends and live off those dividends and that'll be my income. Partially works. And and yes, uh, definitely not bad mouthing high dividend paying stocks at all because they can be a uh, potentially sizable amount of income if you have enough money to put into them. Um, depending on stock, you know, high dividend is probably like 3 or 4%. So if you put uh, $100,000 into a stock and, and it pays a dividend rate of 4%, let's say, that means it's paying $4,000 per year in dividends. Now, that that might or might not be good for you. So think about how much money you need to get a certain amount of income. If you need you know, uh, $20,000 a year of income. And like I said, a high dividend paying stock is let's assume paying 4% of its price in, in dividend. Well, how much money are you going to need to get $20,000 a year in dividend? That's going to be half a million dollars of these stocks you'll need to buy to get a $20,000 a year annual dividend. May sound all right so far, but the downside is um, dividends aren't guaranteed. You know, the companies can cut dividends, can reduce dividends. Now, Practically, there are a lot of companies out there that have been around forever, blue chip, stable companies that have consistently paid dividends, oftentimes with consistently increasing dividends. So the risk is fairly small, depending on the stocks you pick and the you know the particular companies you invest in. Uh, you know, the risk is fairly small that dividends will go away or get reduced, but nonetheless, it is a possibility. Uh, the other thing to consider is even if the dividend continues, the price of that security can potentially drop. 
and can drop substantially. Now, you may not be that concerned if you're going to hold this thing for life and you're just, you just have it to kind of get these dividends every, every quarter, then you may not be that concerned about the drop in price. But um, with any investment, it's ultimately the total return you have to consider, where total return is a combination of two things, the income or dividend it throws off year to year and the change in price. So yeah, when you look at it as a whole, dividend-paying stocks may not be great. While the dividends may look okay, the, the, the prices may drop a lot such that your total annual return can still be negative. So um, not an ideal replacement to bonds, but still stocks or, or other securities that throw off uh, fairly healthy ongoing dividends are, are, are one possible consideration uh, to, to not replace bonds, but maybe to kind of supplement or, or complement them to some extent. These last two are really kind of a stretch that, that I think for the vast majority of people aren't or shouldn't be a consideration. But there are, are t- there are alternative investments, things like private equity funds, hedge funds, other uh, structured investments, sort of like structured notes I, I mentioned before. So just uh, most of my history before most of my professional life before starting my uh, my retirement planning investment business was dealing with alternative investments like hedge funds, private equity funds. There are some strategies out there that were designed to return, you know, mid single digit returns fairly consistently year over year. They're not looking to hit home runs. They're not looking to make 20% a year. They're also trying to avoid losing, uh, you know, substantial amounts of money any given year. They, they just shoot to try to get mid single digit returns every year. And there are some that were fairly successful at consistently doing that. They, you know, they still have their bad years like everyone does, but as a whole, over the long term, uh, there are some alternative investments that, uh, can generate mid-ish single-digit returns on average. Now, the downside is these things are very illiquid. Uh, they also often have large minimums to buy into. You know, 250 grand usually at a minimum. Some of these things are much higher, million dollar plus. Uh, you know, per purchase. And then there's going to be oftentimes redemption restrictions. You can only get money out every quarter or twice a year or something along those lines, or even less perhaps. Or there may be some fee on getting your money out. So I'll, I'll leave that there for now. Um, just pointing out, it's an option. Again, it's far from an ideal replacement for bonds, but there are things out there that can generate fairly slow and steady ongoing average annual returns. And finally, I bring it up just because I'm, I'm sure other folks have have been uh, presented with this as a possible solution, but cash value life insurance. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do uh, different episodes on this at some point, but the pitch with this is that you have an insurance policy. First and foremost, it's life insurance. But coupled with the life insurance is some of your money that you pay every month, every year towards premium. Uh, some of it goes to the cost of the insurance and the fees of the policy, but the rest of it goes into a cash accumulation feature. There's different types of policies. There's some where the the interest that you get on the cash is a you know a guaranteed three percent, four percent per year, uh, kind of no more, no less. There's others where it's it's truly variable. You know the the money is invested in securities like mutual fund like securities, so you you could get pretty high interest some years you can get negative interest some years and there's others uh, all the rage over the last 10 years with the with the sales and marketing machines of insurance companies is index universal life or IUL where um, the the interest you get on the cash value is floored at zero and uh, on the upside you can get some participation in the returns of uh, major market index like the S&P 500 or something uh, 
But I, I uh, am not generally a fan of viewing life insurance as an investment alternative. Yes, life insurance, uh, if, if properly structured, does have investment-like characteristics to it. But there's so much more going on because it is first and foremost insurance. There's always going to be the cost uh, and, and the policy fees of insurance. And over time, the cost usually goes up as, as you age. You know, It gets more expensive for that insurance. So it's far from an apples to apples comparison to ever try to compare cash value life insurance versus traditional investments. But the um, point is that in theory, if you do have a policy, you hold it long enough, uh, you continue to pay the premiums and the cost of the insurance, you, you can have a cash value that, uh, that does kind of go up slow and steady if it is a, a whole, what's called a whole life policy where you get a guaranteed, you know, whatever, three to 4% interest per year. Uh, but again, there's, there's much more to it. It's not nearly that simple. But point is, it's it's possibly an option. Um, now, you can't really go out and, and start a policy today and use it like a bond over the next one or two years. These things really need to sit and bake for the long term for you to eventually uh, realize the, the investment-like components of it and, and truly benefit from that. So far from an ideal solution, but just putting it out there because some people may... Um, you know, may, may pitch this as an investment alternative or, or a bond-like alternative. All right, that's that. That's my thoughts on possible alternatives to bonds in your portfolio. As you can see, that there really isn't anything that's a great replacement. There's a few things that all have different unique pros and cons relative to bonds. Um, so it's, it's interesting times where there's not a necessarily perfect solution for that uh low risk, fairly stable income generating uh, portion of your portfolio, unfortunately. So I'll leave it there. Hope you found this helpful. As always, if you if you like this podcast and the things discussed here, definitely check out my other content sources. I'm, I'm sure you'll be digging them as well. The Facebook group is Taxes and Retirement. YouTube channel is Retirement Planning Demystified. And my newsletter is Retirement Planning Insights. You can find links to all three in the show notes to this episode. And uh, if you do like this podcast, please click the little like button or whatever podcast platform you're listening to, you know, whatever way there is to give feedback or review, uh, please do so. It would be greatly appreciated. All right, that's it. Thank you as always for listening. I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.